Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, good morning. My name is Bryce, and uh, I'm the pastor at Resurrection OC um, down in Ladera Ranch. And um, it's been uh, it's been a joy to kind of hear about King's Cross um, and kind of be a friend of your church from a distance. I met Chris and Alyssa um, maybe two years ago, shortly after our family had moved into the area to start gathering and uh, and planting our church, and it's felt like. Uh, um, you know, this sense of partnership of, of knowing that there's this other family that is going through all the same struggles and ups and downs and joys uh, that we're going through as well. And so it's a joy to uh, get to be here with you um, on Sunday morning. Um, uh, would you pray with me before we t- uh, turn our attention to God's Word? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for uh, the beauty and majesty of your Word and for Uh, this glimpse into the throne room of heaven that Alyssa just read for us. God, I pray that as we sit here in um, this school in Rancho Santa Margarita on the, uh, the threshold of a new year and looking to the future, uh, many of us with hopes, many of us with doubts, God, would you encourage us by your word as um, just for a few moments this morning, the curtain is pulled back and we get a glimpse of ultimate reality in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have uh, told you that I'm a pastor in Ladera Ranch, but before uh, my family moved here, we spent six years in Salt Lake City, Utah, doing campus ministry. And if you've ever been to Salt Lake City, one of the first things you notice um, as you make your way around the city is that the city of Salt Lake is laid out on a grid system. All of the streets are perfectly straight, and they're all numbered. And um, it's a very well-planned-out grid system. Our house was on the corner of 900 South and 800 East. And everywhere you go in the city, there is this sort of a numerical grid coordinates to every address. And so it doesn't take you very long before you start to ask yourself, what do these numbers mean and what are they referring to? And um, the answer is that uh, the grid system in Salt Lake, it emanates from the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake City. The kind of zero, zero point of the grid system is at the corner of the temple, the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake City. So my house at 900 South and 800 East was nine blocks south and eight blocks east of the temple. And when our family would go down to Ikea, we would get on the freeway and we'd drive 15 minutes south and we would get off at 123rd South, 
We were 123 blocks south of the temple. And so uh, the grid system in Salt Lake is this ever-present, very subtle reminder of the influence of the Mormon religion on the culture of Utah and its history. No matter where you are in the whole Salt Lake Valley, you can tell by your address how far you are from the LDS temple. Now, let me just say that um, if there's anybody here who is, who is Mormon or has Mormon friends or background, this is not in any way um, anything negative about, about Mormonism. This is just an observation about the, the history of the Mormon church in the state of Utah. But like it or not, those who live in Salt Lake City and in, in Utah in general, our lives when we live there are oriented around this temple. Everywhere we go, we can, we can kind of plot our coordinates with reference to this religious institution. Now, the reality is that not all of us live in such overtly religious places, and yet we all live in a world that pulls us to orient our lives around something. We've just celebrated Christmas, and uh, we've all felt the gravitational pull that the holiday season has on us with the, you know, the desire to get the, give the perfect gift or maybe to receive the perfect gift or to, to plan the perfect uh, Christmas meal. Whether it's seen in the relentless onslaught of catalogs that show up at our houses promising that if we just get the right beautiful things into our lives that our lives will be more meaningful um, whether it's seen in the uh, um, just the, the ubiquity of technology in our lives. I don't know if I'm the only one that does, well, statistically, I know I'm not the only one that does this. <laughs> you know, what we all do statistically before we get out of bed in the morning, right? 84% of us roll over and grab our phones and check our email before we say hello to anyone, before we make our coffee, uh, we check email. Why do we do that? Well, I know why I do it, because if there's some message in there that I'm longing for and somebody has finally responded to me, it says to me, wow, I'm important. Um, somebody has responded to me. Our lives all bend towards something, and we begin to orbit around that thing. And all of this stands in stark contrast to the image that is uh, laid out before us in Revelation chapter 4. Because when, um, I don't know what your thoughts are, view of the book of Revelation is. You know, there's this kind of, uh, um, you might not have any opinion about the book of Revelation, but for, for some who have been in the, in the church for a while, uh, there's this kind of mystique around the book of Revelation and the idea that the book of Revelation is really, really hard to understand, but it describes events that are going to happen at some point when the world is about to end and we don't really need to understand it because it'll all just pan out one day. But think about what the word revelation actually means. It means that something is being revealed to us, right? If you said, I had a revelation today, it means that I saw something, not I was really confused about something, right? And so what's happening here in Revelation 4 is the, uh, the curtain is pulled back, so to speak, and we're given a glimpse of what is really true, what's going on, in a sense, behind the scenes of human history. Um, not at the end of the world, but what is happening right now 
behind the scenes of human history. And what we see is that standing at the center of the universe, of the cosmos, is the throne room of heaven. And seated on the throne in the center of that room is the Lord God Almighty. And I thought that this morning as we stand on the threshold of this new year, it might just be appropriate for a few minutes for us to think together about the one who is seated on the throne. I want you to notice with me three things about the way that he is described. And the first thing that we see is beauty. In verse 3 of Revelation 4, it says this, He who sat there, he who sat on the throne, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, so it's a description of one seated on this throne, and yet it's described um, as having the appearance of precious stones. Um, Jasper is usually red, but it can also be yellow or green or blue or even translucent, depending on the way that the light hits it. Carnelian is a red stone, and then emerald is green, but it says uh, that there was emerald like a rainbow. And so what it's describing for us is the image of one who is intriguing and beautiful and mysterious. And if you were to say um, to the Apostle John, the one who, who, who had this vision of, of heaven and who wrote this for, for us, but John, what does he look like? I think he would say to us, well, exactly. Because John is not describing the physical features of a God that doesn't have a body. Rather, he's describing the impression that seeing this one seated on the throne made on him. Think with me for a minute about any pirate movie you've ever seen. Like the Pirates of the Caribbean is probably the most obvious for most of us. Uh, But any pirate movie has this scene in it where the pirates are going to uh, enter like the treasure cave. And in this movie, what the, the director, the producer, the writers are wanting to impress upon us is just the, uh, the, the wealth and the riches and the opulence that these pirates have been amassing for years and years and years. And we know there's going to be treasure chests and gold coins and rubies and pearls just overflowing, right? And so at some point in this movie, they're going to go check on their treasure in their, in their treasure cave. And the first thing that we are going to see as an audience as the pirates enter the treasure cave, is not actually the treasure itself, but it'll be a shot looking out the door of the cave as the pirate comes into view of his treasure and his face is illuminated with the gold light reflected off of the treasure. And it's a picture of just of the impression uh, of the incredible wealth, the incredible opulence, the incredible majesty and beauty the warm glow of reflected light, overflowing treasure, and incredible wealth and beauty. And that's a picture of what we see here in Revelation 4, the way that the Lord God Almighty seated on the throne of heaven is pictured. It's a picture of immense wealth and beauty. 
But secondly, we see not only beauty, but we see also power. It says this in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then in verse 6, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What's being pictured here is uh, around the throne, there are 24 elders. And the scholars will tell us that these 24 elders, they represent uh, the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles of the New Testament. So sort of the Old Testament and New Testament redeemed people of God. And then there are four living creatures that represent the created order. These creatures are not human beings. They are angels. Um, They're angels. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear well, these are angels, um, but I think we tend to have like this very cute, precious view of angels, don't we? Like the angels are these creatures that are like fat babies with wings and harps. Um, if that at all is representative about, of your kind of uh, mental image of an angel, let's just hit pause on that for a second and look at what the Bible actually, how it describes angels. Um, there are only two words that I could find in the Bible to describe angels. And the first is the word cherubim, which is a Hebrew word that means winged creatures. And the second word is seraphim, which again is a Hebrew word that means the burning ones. Okay, so these creatures are flying, burning things. Um... These are the sorts of things that if you were to run into one, it would ruin your day, okay? Um, I mean, here's one way to think about it. Like, uh, and let's not have this be the thing that, like, like, don't tell Chris. What did the guy, well, he talked about aliens, okay? But, but let's just say for a moment that, like, there are aliens, right? I have no opinion, pro or con, on aliens, but, like, if you're on your way home this afternoon and an alien appears to you, you're not probably going to think, oh, well, that was really cute, right? <laughs> it's probably going to ruin your day. Um, this is why every time an angel appears in the Bible, the first thing an angel says is, do not be afraid. Why do they say that? Because angels are used to whenever they appear, human beings are terrified. These are not cute, cuddly little things. These are things that would terrify us if they showed up. Okay, but what are they doing? Here's the point. This is what they're doing. It says in verse 9 and 10, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, etc. 
Okay, so these creatures that would ruin our day if they showed up, what are they doing? They are living in a perpetual state of worship. Why? Well, it's in response to the one seated on the throne. And so the question I want you to think about is this. What does the one seated on the throne say to provoke the response of worship from these angels? I mean, look at, look at the text. What, is, what does God say in the passage to provoke this response? Well, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Devil Wears Prada. It's the obvious place to go right now, right? Um, the Devil Wears Prada is this movie with Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep uh, that came out, I don't know, 10-something years ago. And uh, in this movie, uh, Meryl Streep is kind of a high-powered fashion industry executive, and Anne Hathaway is an intern, and she wants to be a writer, but somehow she gets stuck at this fashion magazine, and she thinks it's all beneath her. And... Um, I don't know. It's kind of funny, I guess. Um, but um, I, I, I heard an interview a couple of years ago with Anne Hathaway, and she was describing what happened the first time the cast of The Devil Wears Prada got together uh, to just sit around a table and read through the script of the movie together. And uh, Anne Hathaway was saying it was coming up to this point where Meryl Streep's character was just going to sort of uh, bowl over everybody in the room. Um, and she expected it to be big and loud and angry. And it got up to this, this point. And Meryl Streep doesn't yell. She whispered. And Anne Hathaway said, everybody in the room just leaned in. And it was an incredibly powerful image. And that, I think, is just a small, small thumbnail image of what is happening here in this passage. That the one seated on the throne is so beautiful and so powerful and so majestic and so mysterious that those in his presence fall down and worship in him, uh, on their knees in front of him. They can do nothing else simply because of who he is. God doesn't even whisper. He doesn't speak. And those in his presence bend themselves around him. Why? Because he is the Lord God Almighty. I don't know how that sounds to you. Um, you know, there's a sense in which that could sound utterly terrifying, right? But the elders are not terrified. They're doing it for joy. What do they do? They come off their thrones, they fall down before God on His throne in worship, and they take off their crowns and they toss them at His feet. They, they bend their lives around the one seated on the throne. What does that mean? Um, what does it mean that they, they take off their crowns and they cast their crowns before Him? Well, think about what a crown is. Obviously, there's a sense that uh, a crown employs royalty and honor. <laughs> But um, I want to give you a little bit different way to think about a, uh, a crown. And it's this. Imagine if you were like, next time you go to, to work or, you know, whatever it is that you do, um, imagine you just showing up at work this week wearing a crown. You just go about your day, normal, everyday kind of stuff, but you're wearing a crown on your head. Uh, do you think anybody would notice? <laughs> hey, Bob, like, what's with the crown today? Um, it would feel pretty conspicuous, right? 
A crown is that thing. It is our glory. It is the thing for which we are conspicuous. It's your reputation. It's your accomplishments. It's maybe your, um, your deepest, darkest secret, that thing that um, as you go through life, you're always aware of, always hoping it won't come out. Uh, maybe it's the thing that you hope for, the thing that seems just around the next corner and yet hasn't actually come to fruition yet. And the elders take off their crowns and they toss them at the foot of the throne. Why? For joy. They see the true king on his rightful throne, full of power and beauty, and they give up their crowns and they bend their lives around him. Third thing we see in this passage is calm. Beauty and power, but calm. In front of the throne, it says in verse 6, is a sea of glass like crystal. It's perfectly calm. Um, The sea in the Bible, you know, uh, I mean, we live close to the ocean. Uh, We think of the beach as a place that we go to rest, to relax, right? Uh, Maybe you might go to the beach for a vacation for a week. Uh, But we also know that even when we say the ocean is glassy, it's never like perfectly flat. I don't know if there, we have any surfers here, but you know, when we say, oh, it's so, it was so glassy today. Like, <laughs> it still moves, right? And what, what it's picturing here is a, a sea of crystal, just perfectly, perfectly flat, calm. The sea in the Bible is not a place um, that we go on vacation In the Bible, the sea is a metaphor for chaos. Um, In the Bible, the sea is the place that storms came from. It's the place that people went and never came back. It's a symbol of chaos. Um, In the early chapters of Genesis, it says that um, the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the sea, and out of the chaos of the sea, God called his good creation into existence. In the book of Exodus, God leads his people through the Red Sea, which the New Testament calls a baptism, right? Through the, the sea of chaos into the promised land. In the book of Jonah, of course, the, uh, the, the sea is what threatens to take the life of the sailors, and it's into the sea that Jonah is thrown. In the New Testament, Jesus calms the, the storm that comes out of the, out of the sea. The sea is um, tumultuous. It is, uh, it is overwhelming, and it is, it is chaotic. But here it's calm like glass. It's perfectly still. And so the question we're supposed to ask is, how in the world can that be, that the sea is like glass? And the answer that Revelation 4 would hold out to us is this, that the one who sits on the throne uses his wealth and power and beauty to calm chaos and to bring peace. That's who the one seated on the throne is. Now, I don't know how you would describe your life, but I'm guessing calm is not the word. Um... You know, if you ask somebody in Orange County, how are you doing? There are two acceptable answers. 
The first is fine, which is sort of like a non-answer. And the second is busy, right? That's all you're allowed to say. Like, nobody really wants to know an answer to the question. Why? But what are we saying about ourselves? It's like, I don't even know what's going on. I just feel so much, feel so tumultuous in here that I don't even know how to think about what's going on in my life, so I'm just going to say busy. What Revelation 4 is holding out to us is the promise that the one seated on the throne is marshalling all of his resources to bring calm into our lives. Now here's where it all comes together. In verse 1, verse 1 it says this, um, in, voice, in, ver, in verse 1, there's a voice which, if we'd been reading, reading since the beginning of uh, the book of Revelation, we would know is the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says to John, come up here. And what he's saying is this, come into this room, come into the throne room. I'm going to invite you into the presence of God. And what I believe he's saying to us also is, come into this room. See, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus lived. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus rose again. This is what Jesus is doing now. He is seated on the throne. Everything Jesus has done, he has done to bring his people into the presence of God. And so he says to us also, come in here, come into this room. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, but um, think about it like this. Um, have you ever walked into the bedroom of another adult? There's a lot of ways that you could inappropriately answer that question, right? But that kind of proves the point that like, there's, a, um, there's like a holiness about the bedroom of another adult. Holiness means set apart. It's a space that just instinctively know we just instinctively know is an intimate place. Um, several years ago, we were having some friends. Our family was going to be out of town for a while, and we were having some friends um, house it for us. And so we had them over before we left, and we were kind of showing them around the house, and we're going through room after room, and we walked into our bedroom, and my wife and I walked into our bedroom, and they just kind of stopped at the door. And it was just this palpable sense of like, ooh, that's like... It's an intimate place. Like, I don't, it doesn't feel right to walk into the room of another adult. Well, what John is showing us is that at the center of the universe stands the throne room of God. And it is the most holy room in all of the cosmos. And you are welcome in that room. Because of Jesus, we come into the presence of God with the chaos of all of that, all that we are, the chaos of our lives. And we come into that most intimate, most holy place. And our chaos doesn't infect that place, but rather the one seated on the throne marshals his beauty, his resources, his power to bring calm and peace into our lives. How does that sound? I don't, I don't know how that sounds. That sounds like really good news to me. Um, and yet I realize that saying that on a Sunday morning, it sounds great. 
And yet most of us know, maybe we've had a break, but we're going back to work this week. And by the time the, uh, the meeting on Thursday morning rolls around, um, chaos is going to have the upper hand again. And so the question is, how do we get the peace of Revelation 4 on Sunday morning to hook up with the chaos of that Thursday stressor? Or the temptation of next Saturday night? How do we get those two things to come together in our lives? Well, Revelation 4, God on the throne is a picture of ultimate reality. It's meant not just to bring us a fleeting feeling of calm on Sunday morning. It's meant to help us reorient our lives. So how do we, how do we reorient our lives on a Sunday morning such that it will last to Thursday and to Saturday and, and, to, and beyond? Well, I have a friend named John, and um, I heard him tell this story a couple of years ago, John travels a lot for work, and um, it was early one Saturday morning. He had just flown home, and he was driving back to his house. And uh, you know, Saturday morning, it's kind of cold, not a lot going on. The neighborhood's kind of quiet, and he pulls into his neighborhood, and he's a couple blocks away from his house, and he comes around the corner. And as he drives around the corner, right in front of him, there's a house on fire. And he says he, he later learned that at that point, that house had been on fire. The fire had been burning for 20 minutes. So John pulled over, got out his phone, and called 911, told the operator that uh, there was a house on fire. And he said, this is kind of funny, that um, the operator said, do not go in there. And John said, like, right, like I was going to go in there. But just wait. <laughs> So he says, at that moment, I could hear a fire engine rev up its siren like three blocks in the other direction. And the next thing that happened is two garage doors in the house opened and two cars backed out of the garage. And a man got out of one of them. So John went over to this man who just backed a car out of his burning house. And this man who's in shock goes over to the side of his house, picks up the garden hose and turns it on and hands the, um, hands the garden hose to John where he proceeds to walk up and down the sidewalk on the side of his house going... <sighs> now think about what's happening here. The fire's been burning for 20 minutes. It's well established and then opening the garage doors, he's just introduced a whole bunch more oxygen into the situation. And the reason I'm telling you this is because that is a picture of the way that most of us are living our lives. There is a thing going on that we are ignorant of and we are trying to distract ourselves with entertainment. We are hoping that just with the garden hose of, well, if I maybe just get a new accountability partner, maybe I won't struggle with this anymore. That is us. So John is standing there holding the garden hose while a crazy man is blowing at his house that's on fire. And the fire truck arrives. And the captain gets out and all the firefighters get out. And they get ready and the captain pulls out a stopwatch and he says, go. 
and in seven minutes, the fire is out. And the point is this, that either the stresses of life will burn until there's nothing left of our lives but melted concrete, or our lives will be reoriented around the one who sits enthroned at the center of the cosmos before a sea of glass. We cannot put out the fire that rages in our lives, but there is one who has come to put it out for us. Now, does that mean that um, that Thursday morning meeting doesn't affect you? Does that mean that temptation just bounces off like Teflon? Well, no, of course not. But what it means is that living as a Christian means learning to stop in the midst of chaos, the chaos of life. It means reorienting ourselves around the reality that there is one seated on the throne and life functions best when our lives orient around him. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. And that's why he ascended into heaven where he's now seated on that throne. And he says to us, come up here. I've come to bring peace into your life. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.